Good morning, everybody. It's good to be up front here. Good to be bringing God's word to you. Just uh, a quick word that we will be having and sharing communion a little bit later. Um, hopefully, everyone got a kit in the in the room just to do communion. For those that are at home, just uh, just a heads up. Maybe you want to duck out and quickly get some communion um, elements to share with us later. Um, I, I, I genuinely, one of the things that makes me the most concerned about preaching is boring people. You know, not, not you being boring people, but me boring people, if that makes sense, a little bit different. Um, I genuinely, genuinely cannot stand sitting in a place, listening to someone drone on and being utterly bored with what's being said. And that's one of the things that I bring to these sermons. And the, 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 the problem is that the way I try to make things not boring is through things that I enjoy. And it might not be things that you necessarily find stimulating. So apologies. But my real, real hope, my genuine hope is during this sermon that all of us will be genuinely engaged with what is being said, I believe, from God's heart. And uh, that you'll be genuinely really grappling with what, it, what it's going to be saying. If it goes as well as I hope it does, today's sermon is going to be a, it's going to be a tough one. And, and I think if we leave here having a sense of, geez, oh, no, that was completely ordinary and maybe a little bit weak, then I think maybe I've missed the mark somewhere along the line. You know, you should never comment on how somebody drives because that's too personal. You know, sitting someone next to someone and saying, no, 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 slow down or put the brake on or, you know, you must never do that. It just irritates them. Well, that's the zone that I'm stepping in today, into today. It's a personal zone. And so when we step into that zone, it's easy to cause offense. So that's just a bit of a heads up as to where we're going today. But before we get to that zone, I'm sure many people here today will be able to say something similar to me when I, when I say that, that faith has done a massive amount for me and in me. Faith has done a massive amount for me and in me. I, I, I sometimes, and I think I might have mentioned it before, I sometimes wonder what a faithless approach to life would be like. You know, what would it be like? What would it feel like? How, how, would, I, how would I navigate situations without faith? How would I approach situations without faith? How would I even evaluate situations without faith? And I must admit, that little exercise I found often quite unimaginable. I, I can't imagine what life would be like without faith. I bet you it's kind of like a fish trying to imagine what life would be like living out on the land. You know, it must be really difficult to imagine. Here's one of the many, many important consequences of a faith in God for me. All right? I honestly believe that there is real purpose and significance about our lives. I, I honestly believe that there is real purpose and significance about our lives. And I have that belief because of my faith in God. Or to put it another way, there is a reason behind my birth. There is a reason behind your birth. There's an intention behind the kind of person I am. The fact that I'm good-looking, charming, 
great sense of humor and an athletic build, you know, that kind of stuff. It's not just a random concoction of luck. Okay, tongue in cheek, you know that. I mean, I don't need to actually say that. But, but neither you nor I are simply a random outcome of a biological act that happened, you know, 50-something years ago for me. Our lives cannot be reduced to that level. There's infinitely more to my life than simple chemistry. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, tells that story brilliantly for us. We're going to go to that verse. And, and I'd love us for us to just imagine for a moment that this verse is a friend, a new friend that you're wanting to get to know. You sit down at cop, have a cup of coffee with a friend next to a table. You kind of listen to their life. You know, the, the friend listens to your life and have a bit of interaction. That's how I'd love you to imagine trying to grapple with this verse a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, beautiful verse, says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so it starts off, if we look at that verse, it starts off with that, that point that all of us are created by God. Okay, I've already said that. That's the critical starting point of our lives and our existence. We have to, if we think about our lives, start with that point that God created us. Psalm 139. Um, the psalmist gets caught up with that truth and he says, says to God in his moment of prayer, he says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm sure it's not just because of the outcome, how we turned out, but, but because of the fact that God, the creator, actually had his hands on us. The fingerprints of God and his creative genius is all over your life. Notice also that it says we are God's handiwork, workmanship, masterpiece, all different English words. Trying to translate the Greek word. We are God's handiwork. Get this, the Greek word for handiwork is the word poema. Poema. Just for a moment, you'll have to drop your mask and shout out or tell me what that English, what English word reflects that word. Come on, what is, what's the English? Yes, it's the word poem. That's where the English word is derived from. We are God's poem. I think that strikes me as, as incredibly moving. Back in ancient Greek days, they used to use that word poem to describe beautiful architecture, you know, an awesome painting, fantastic statue, or just a poem. That's the word that they'd go to to describe what they're seeing and what, they, what they're experiencing in that moment. It's a poema. You, as you sit there, get this. It's hard to imagine, but get it. You, as you sit here today, are God's poem, masterpiece. You're a work of art. I'd love you to turn to the person next to you and just say, I am a masterpiece. Say, no, okay, you don't have to do that because I know it's very awkward. But you could legitimately turn to the person next to you and say, I am epic. I am a masterpiece. God's fingerprints are all over me. Because that is the truth of the matter. There is a unique 
and individual beauty and significance about us as individuals that was first created and imagined by our Creator. Just again, imagine that moment. Some sometime in infinity past, our immense God, our immense God gathers up all His wisdom and His creative genius. And he sits down and he writes, he constructs a poem that uses your name as its heading. And says, yes, he or she fits perfectly into the creation story that I have envisaged. And then the verse carries on and starts to explain some of that story. It says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do Good works, which were prepared in advance or beforehand. And the picture is developed. We get the sense that there is a plan that is filled with goodness. That's the, that's the flavor of our contribution in life. It is a plan that is filled with goodness. A goodness that we have the epic privilege of bringing into our families. A goodness a God kind of goodness that we have the privilege of bringing into our workspaces. A goodness that, that impacts strangers that we meet. A goodness that reaches all the way to the ends of the earth. That is part of the poem that is written in your heart and over your life. It's a story of God's goodness. It's the story that is the backdrop of your soul. It's the foundation of your life story. It's the poem and it's a plan that will make who we are and what we do go beyond mediocrity and stepping into meaningful and full and significant living. I guess the opposite is true too though. Live your life oblivious or careless of this plan, and I believe that there will be an unshakable sense of loss that will become part of our lives. We will forever long for the calling of the story that God has written for us until it becomes part of our lives. And so the critical question that I'm sure many of us ask is then how then do we find that story that God has written for our lives. How do, we, how do we find that story? I want to step into that story. How do I know what direction to step? What leads us? You know, what motivates us into the calling? I think some people have clearly found their answer. We look around at us and we encounter incredible people and we observe their lives almost in wonder. And we ask, you know, why would they go to that length for that cause? I mean, they could have made much more of their life, surely. And yet they, they, they sacrifice and they passionately pour their lives into that cause. Why are they so passionate about that part of their life or that job that they're involved in? You know, what's the reason behind it? What is the firestorm that forces people to, to such extreme lengths at times, sometimes even uncomfortable but massively impacted spaces of leadership and service and sacrifice. Now there's a hundred ways to answer this question, how do we find the story? Here's just one way we're going to try to answer that question, just one, okay? 
Let's look at what happens in the lives of some of these incredibly influential people just before they found the story for their lives. What was, the, what was happening in the moments just before they had a sense, this is going somewhere? What happened in those early moments? Okay? We're going to look at some of these people. And firstly, we're going to look at Moses, one of the greatest prophets of, the, of Israel. He ended up leading, leading a whole nation out of captivity. I mean, that's an epic, epic legacy to leave, isn't it? That's massive influence on, on people and, and people's well-being and so on. But if we go back into his history, into Moses' history, to discover that moment just before his calling started to unfold, I think we end up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Bit of a surprising place, maybe, if we've always thought that the burning bush was the defining moment. Exodus 2, verse 11, Moses went out, and it says that he went out to see his own people. Remember, Moses had been basically adopted by the the, the prince, prince, a princess in Egypt, a queen of Egypt. I don't know, one of the queen or princess. Someone can tell me, I'm sure. Princess, princess. Princess of Egypt. Had, eh? Pharaoh's daughter, okay. Princess had adopted him when he was a little, little baby. And, um, and so he'd been brought up in this home. And, and basically, he had been living as an Egyptian all along, he had known he was a Hebrew. And then comes the one day, the, the, the incredibly faithful, faithful day, where he says he went out to see his own people. Whatever drew him there, I don't know. And he saw one of the Hebrews being beaten up. Up until that point in Moses' life, he had been living a relatively normal existence, as normal as a prince of Egypt's life can be. But then this mega moment happens, and he witnesses the beating, and things in his life change radically from that point onwards. It's never the same again after that moment. It was an incredibly defining moment. I don't know why that moment carried so much power in Moses' life. Maybe it was how graphic the beating was. If you've seen violent acts, you know that it can be deeply disturbing. And I think that's what happened with Moses. The sights of this guy being beaten, the, the sounds of, you know, flesh impacting flesh or whatever the case may be, maybe even the smells that emanated, but the, or just the injustice of the whole event that this powerful Egyptian was beating this helpless guy. Something got through Moses' mind and, and deeply disturbed him and left a massive impression on his life. In fact, later, as God sets his calling before Moses, tells him something of the story he hopes Moses' life would tell, it seems that God draws on the vividness of this moment. Exodus chapter 3, next to the burning bush, he says, listen to the language God uses. Moses, I've seen the misery of the Israelites in Egypt. I've heard the sounds. I've heard their cries. And it seems as if God is climbing back into that moment for Moses and using that moment, moment to motivate and lead Moses into a calling out of a moment of crisis. A calling starts to emerge. David, the greatest king of Israel, raised this tiny nation to unbelievable hearts. 
His defining moment arrived when he encountered a trash-talking giant. Goliath standing before the armies of God and kind of just disrespecting them and challenging them and abusing their cowardice and so on. But from David's perspective, as he sits there, a little shepherd boy, and as he listens to Goliath, listen to how he frames that moment, 2 Samuel 7, 36. He says, he speaks against the armies of the living God. For David, this wasn't just a disrespectful moment. This was now a faith issue. This problem was fundamentally that his God's image was being tainted by this this giant, this trash-talking giant. And this cut him to the core. He hated the fact that this guy had the freedom to speak about God's armies, and that God's image was being tainted by his abusiveness. And so he steps into a role of courage and conviction. And he puts his life on the line. In the end, he finishes off the giant. We all know that story. But as he takes that step forward, effectively, it was a step that would lead him to the throne and into his true calling. Once again, a deeply disturbing moment is used powerfully to create a calling in someone's life. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, another prophet of the Old Testament, was deeply disturbed that the, that the walls of Jerusalem were down. God's people were exposed and vulnerable. God's name inevitably would have been ridiculed by the people, okay? So he's sitting in a far-off land as a captive, and he, and he hears about Jerusalem, God's, God's city, and how it's, it's being absolutely abused. And this, this thought plays havoc in his mind. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, capture that moment, says, They said to me, those who survived the exile, that they back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And again, maybe because it wasn't our calling, we look at this guy and say, how can he get so upset by that little, well, not little, but by that occurrence? Broken walls, burnt gates. I mean, I know this, but really to sit for days, mourning and fasting. Out of that discontent as a result, he approaches the king. He bravely asks for help. And he heads back to Jerusalem. And the long and the short of it is that his calling to oversee the rebuilding of that wall, wall is put into place. Homeground church. It seems to be a common trend that the call of many people in the Bible, those incredible stories that God has written for, him, for them, they emerge from moments of deep pain, beating of a Hebrew, deep disgust, disrespect of a giant, or deep discontent, the broken walls of Jerusalem. People in our church can tell a similar story. The food parcel ministry in our church, which has served many, many people, is kind of inspired by the poverty in our, in our nation and in our communities. The horrible picture of people who do not have food to eat inspires that calling and that ministry. Home ground recovery Again, the story of destruction of addiction in people's individual lives and then into the families has, has inspired a ministry called Home Ground Recovery. Divorce care, 
The horrible pain of divorce has inspired support groups and conversations and ministry, bringing God even into that brokenness. Folk, massive parts of the ministry footprint of our church, many of them have been birthed out of an experience of brokenness, of despair, of hopelessness and defeat. It's the pain that has birthed those calls. To take this to a bit of a ridiculous extent, back in the day, I love that cartoon character, Popeye. I mean, who thought that name up? Yeah, what a genius, Popeye. And he would often use a line that time and again would put into words the utter frustration that he was feeling. We used to get ready, you know, for school in the morning, about half past six, there was a cartoon little section on TV, and we always say, Mark, call us, like 10 minutes, and we used to watch these cartoons. Sometimes it was Popeye. And generally, it was when his lady whose name was Olive Oil, bizarrely, uh, when she was in some kind of distress, when she was being bullied, when she, her life was being threatened, at some point, Papa would pronounce these profound words. Okay, it's all I can stands, I can stands it no more. All right, that's what he'll burst down. And then he'd, he'd down a t- can of spinach and he'll gain some supernatural powers from that t- can of spinach and he'll just sort in a, in a snap, he'll sort out the baddie. You know, it was like the same story over and over, but that's how it looked. Incidentally, that was the only reason I would ever eat spinach as a kid. <laughs> you know, I had thoughts of becoming supernaturally strong. Anyway, Papa puts into words the essence of that sense of discontent that inspired great people of God, Moses, David, Nehemiah, people in our church, into the story that God had for them, that sense that I can't take this no more. I can't just carry on accepting. I can't, I cannot, I cannot find it myself to settle for this reality as if it's just something I've got to learn to live with. I can't. This is not okay. I have to do something about it. The sense of discontent, I honestly reckon, is a holy thing. It's a gift from God because it reflects and mirrors His heart at times. It is often the first domino to fall before we are moved into action, into a story about us that God wrote before the start of time. It's a holy discontent because it's a gift of God. Now, I mentioned earlier that COVID and lockdown has caused many of us, including the leadership in our church, to start to reimagine, reconsider, revise our picture of church. We've all had that experience in different zones. Some have detached completely from church. They've yet to find the desire or the need to head back to a church experience. I pray that they do find that desire and hope again sometimes because in God's economy of things, church is a non-negotiable. It is part of his plan of salvation. There's no sidestepping that. Others have stayed connected, but for all of us, I think, it's been a very different experience than ever before. I mean, just the fact that we're sitting spaced out with masks on gives testimony to that. Here's the thing, though. In amongst all the shrapnel, that has been flying around because of COVID, I honestly believe, and if we believe that there's a God 
who is all-powerful, we have to see that we also have been presented with an opportunity, an opportunity to be passionately intentional about making our new experience of church even more aligned with the picture God has always had in mind about church than ever before. I suspect that a holy discontent about, how, about some parts of how church used to happen is not only appropriate, but absolutely necessary not right now as we transition to a new type of church that I believe God is calling us towards. That discontent is a God-given gift that if used well, if responded to well, will lead us as homegrown church to a better future. Let's try to put into words some of the discontent all of us must feel about our church. And that's a, that's a risky business, isn't it? Putting a list like this together. That's why they pay me big bucks to get up here and tell you what the list is because you can just sit there, criticize the list. You know, fact is, we'd all have a different list. We'd all put, say, no, 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 this also needs to be included, or that shouldn't be overstated. Um, and also, we all fit into the list in different places. So at times when I read this list, I'm going to be preaching to the choir. And you guys will be like, no, we're over that. You know, that's, we're on top of that. And the people that should be listening are, you know, not listening. But unless we can start to have conversations around this list, we are going to miss an incredible opportunity to be redefined as a church. We need to accept as a friend a holy discontent about how our church was. Because the wounds of a friend are faithful and true, as Scripture says. Here's a list of discontent that I reckon has potential to serve our church well. Firstly, many of us need to stop seeing church like a visit to the movies, to see it more like a visit to the gym. It's in how we plan for and how we experience the service. Folk, I must engage. I must engage and be part of the worship and the preaching and the prayer and the community. The more passive we are at church, the further we are from God's intention for church. Maybe to say the same thing in a different way. We need to stop watching from a distance while others pray, while others read the Bible, while others reach the lost, while others help the hurting. This is something every believer in Christ is called to, folk. It is a story written on our souls. It is that goodness that God has written about us, achieved in different times and ways and means because we are different, granted, but it is a call to all of us. I think we need to recognize as a church that organizing and strategizing must never replace the power of God's Spirit working amongst us. 
And maybe that's more particularly relevant to today's occurrence, Pentecost Sunday. Let's be reminded of this. And I think this must be particularly owned by our staff. Not only our staff, because I think many of us are like that, but we are a very functional bunch. If something needs to be solved, we will plan and strategize until it's solved and possibly not long after God's spirit enough to say, please, God, you make the difference here. Folk, we need to grasp the difference, the significant difference between a church and a good charity that I support. Okay? There's a difference. A church needs to become my family. It needs to become my spiritual home, a place that people know my journey and I know their journey and I help them and they help me. That's what spiritual family and a spiritual home looks like and feels like. You know, charity is something I support from a distance. A church needs to be different. There's a level of buy-in and ownership that doesn't allow us year in and year out to exist purely at an arm's length and largely anonymous in church. If that is the case, you're welcome here, but understand that there's something missing in terms of your church experience. Church is more about community than meetings. Church is more about stretching my love than stating my opinions. Church is more about faces and names than numbers. Church must be more about friendships. And oh God, may you find this in your experience of church. Church is more about friendship than meetings. Don't settle for just coming to this meeting. May you find friends here. Church is more about healing brokenness than naming brokenness. Church must be more about reaching than grasping. Heard a great question asked last week where someone said, if all our prayers are answered, would the world change or only our lives? Church is best when it's more about conversations than pronouncements. Worship is more about mystery and awe than worship styles. Preaching is more about listening for the voice of God than to the voice of an imperfect, sinful, biased, droopy-eyed preacher. And obviously, talking about myself, not the rest of the preaching crew. Okay? Whoever is up here, listen to the voice of God. Listen for the voice of God. That's the way to deep preaching. 
Church, church believes that people not like me in Christ are in fact just like me. Church seeks Christ above all, in all, and for all. Look, this is something of the list that I believe we need to grapple with right now. Sure, it's an incomplete list. I'm sure you could add and edit and cut and paste and do it much more effectively. But I think it's a good starting point if the heart of those things is something we're grappling with. To be clear, all of us need to be grappling with it. All of us. It is our list, our challenge. If you call this group of people your spiritual family, your spiritual, then please own this list with me. There's no one person that is more of a solution than the other. Maybe there is to a degree. But all of us are part of the solution. I'm sure you'd agree with me that I don't want to be part of a church that simply puts on a good show every weekend. Church needs to be much more than that. And I pray that God may spark that holy discontent so that it drives us beyond the kind of church that we will settle for, that will settle for just an old norm that now we're just going to hanker after. Yes, those good old days. Please, God, may we not be simply that kind of church. Church that long for what we used to know. Just quickly, I also need to say, if this has happened, that this isn't a sermon that is, like, that is meant to shame anyone. Shame is a horrible emotion. It really was not intended to do this. This list hopefully leads us to a clearer picture of God, what God actually wants to do in and through us and what we are willing to pursue as a group. Homeground church. Homeground church. There is a poema about our church's future that is still becoming a reality even through this tough season. And may this list lead us deeper into that reality deeper into the power of God's Spirit, and may God's kingdom come through our church as we step into this future. Folk, if this week, and I guess it is to a degree this, if this week is about deconstructing our view of church, next week, Debs has the epic privilege of taking us into the first, step, first few steps of reconstructing what we believe the future looks like. I'm really excited to be part of this journey, folk, and to hear what, Debs has put on, uh, what God has put on Debs' heart as we start to look to the future and say, where is God taking us in the midst of this season? Look forward to it, Debs. Best to be a good one, eh? No pressure. <laughs> we'll all rate you out of 10 at the end of that sermon. Okay, so up your game. No, I'm joking. And ask the worship team just to come up. I'm going to wrap this up with by taking a moment, taking us to a moment that Jesus had with some of his friends. You all got your little communion kit, I hope. If you can just latch on to it now. I had it in the first service. That's why I'm holding it even though it's not in my hand. Take us to a moment that Jesus had with some of his friends. Sometimes we use the word disciples, and that that's, makes a lot of sense. But actually, I think first and foremost, those people around Jesus were probably his friends. 
And it was a beautiful experience of church as it meant to be, that moment. As Jesus pronounced those words of the bread and wine that were on the table before him, he said, eat this, it is my body broken for you, holding the bread. And he said, drink this cup in remembrance of me. Okay, as, he, as, he, as he did those movements, as he pronounced those words in the first communion ever, first communion service ever, I want you to just notice a few dynamics that were happening in the room. Notice firstly, if this, this was a great experience of church, notice firstly, he was at the center of that moment. It was a story about him. Not in an arrogant way, but because he is the center of creation. He was at the center of the moment. Notice also it was an intimate and authentic moment. Surrounded by friends. Jesus talking about some tragic things that were just about to happen in his life. He was being authentic. Questions were asked. Things were grappled with. It was an intimate and authentic moment. It was a moment of prayerfulness and pause. I honestly believe that as Jesus said these things that were just about to happen to him, that, that his friends had a moment of pause and said, whoa, whoa, can't imagine that happening to you, Jesus. I've zero doubt that after these moments, after these conversations, that, that prayer happened amongst his friends and disciples. A moment of pray, prayerfulness and pause. Notice also that no one was sitting at a theater watching a show developed in that moment. Okay? At a movie house, just watching actors doing their thing. No. Everyone around that table was deeply and utterly engaged and drawn in. It was about their life. It was about their friend. It was about their God. It was church as it was meant to be. So now, as we eat and drink, commemorating that moment, may it be as something of a commitment to find that experience of church again. Because in that moment, in that experience, with those dynamics in the room, we will find Jesus again sitting next to us speaking with us. So now, won't you take and eat? And may our lives again lean towards the beauty of this gift called church that Jesus uses to get us to know him better. Won't you take and eat? Thank you.